Well, good morning, Calvary Bible Church family. Please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21 this morning. If you knew you only had a handful of days or perhaps weeks left to live, how would that impact your life? Specifically, how would that impact your words? What would be the topics that fill your conversations? In this letter, 2 Peter, Peter is writing to believers in days of persecution and false teaching. He anticipates his own death at the hands of Nero on account of his testimony to Jesus Christ. And as he does that, he also watches the attempted infiltration of various false teachers into the church fellowship. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes this letter as he did the first to remind them of the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of Christ. Being reminded of these things would keep their expectations calibrated toward Christ's coming and their wills resolved to obey Christ amidst difficult days of persecution. So let's read our text this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice. Born from heaven, we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises. In your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of having a right relationship with you through Christ. We thank you for salvation and the gift that is. Lord, we thank you for your word and the gift that this is to guide us and to lead us in this day. Lord, I ask, I plead with you, we plead with you that you would be with us in our midst now. Allow your word to have its way in each heart. Help me to speak clearly as I ought and be with every heart here that there would be a receptivity and a listening to what your word has to say to each life here. We ask all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. As Peter addresses the issues and the errors that the churches are facing, he does so with a very forward-looking letter. This letter is filled with references to the coming of Christ, to the day of the Lord, and to key end times events. In the opening verses of this letter, Peter calls for diligent effort in the Christian life that is fueled by a recognition of God's gracious and abundant provision. And Peter exhorts his readers 
towards diligence that produces a peace and a settled hope of entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 11, immediately preceding what we just read. Regarding the previous verses, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter has just declared what qualities must be present in order to enjoy confident entrance into Christ's kingdom. The first 11 verses are answering the question, how can I have confidence that I will enter the kingdom of Christ? How can I have confidence that I will enter the kingdom of Christ? But he pivots in verse 12 through 21 to highlighting three witnesses to the certainty of Christ's coming. Where the preceding verses show qualities that are present and growing in an individual that ought to surely expect entrance into the kingdom. These verses, verses 12 through 21, establish the basis for our confident expectation of the establishment of Christ's kingdom at his return. Verses one through 11 produce personal confidence regarding our fitness for the kingdom. Verses 12 through 21 provide grounds for our confident anticipation that Christ will indeed return and establish his kingdom. The former look at our readiness, the latter at the certainty of Christ's second coming. Specifically, this passage that we'll be looking at this morning, 12 through 21, this passage provides us three witnesses to the certainty of Christ's coming. Three witnesses to the certainty of Christ's coming. The first witness is the individual witness of this letter, Peter's second letter. The individual witness of this letter. The second is the collective witness of the apostles' experience. The collective witness of the apostles' experience. And the third is the comprehensive witness of Scripture's testimony. These are three witnesses that are concentric with the following encompassing the former. It's not just a bullet list of these three. It's not this, then this, then this. But rather, this letter is a part of the apostles' experience. And the apostles' experience written down is a part of Scripture's comprehensive witness. So first, the individual witness of this letter, verses 12 through 15. The first witness to the certainty of Christ's coming is the second letter of Peter. In verses 12 through 15, Peter explains and justifies his ministry of reminder, which is preserved for us in this letter. This second letter of Peter is, as we've already mentioned, highly directional. It's not merely explaining something. It's pointing toward something. Throughout this letter, Peter reminds believers of both specific and also big picture realities that pertain to the second coming of Christ the day of the Lord, the kingdom of Christ. Peter dedicates very little time in this letter for practical life tips for Christians, and rather he sets about to remind them of key truths that will bolster their faith amidst the difficult days they're in and the even more difficult days ahead. He especially focuses on the truth which will correct the false teaching the churches are encountering and also help them keep their focus on the coming day of the Lord. Peter's resolve to remind, seen in these verses, provides a helpful example for us today. In verse 12, we see that Peter is ready to remind. Read with me verse 12. Therefore, I intend always, I'm always ready to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Though not necessarily arising from the need of his readers, 
Peter was eager to rehearse the foundational elements of the believer's hope. He was ready to remind them of God's promises and the richness of the blessings that they had received in Christ. Notice they already knew the truth. They were already holding on to it. They were already making application of God's word. Nevertheless, he's sharing it with them again. Even when we are established in God's word, we need to still be saturating ourselves in the truth. That is why we gather week in and week out and hear the word proclaimed. That's why in our one-on-one discipling meetings, we study the Bible or books that help us to understand the Bible. That is why we sign up for Tuesday morning Bible studies or Wednesday night theology classes. A growing believer is a hungry believer. A growing believer is a hungry believer and we want to be feasting our hearts and minds on the rich truth of God's word. You probably can't remember 95% of the meals that you've eaten in your life, but each played an important part in your physical growth and your survival. Those that Peter was writing to both knew the truth and they were established, rooted, steadfast, deeply attached to that truth. And yet, Peter is eager to relay to them what? The very truth that they already know. A sorrowful thing can happen to Christians who have been nourished and sustained by sound teaching for decades. We can become dull of hearing and begin to think that we do not need to hear certain things again. In our pride, we become impatient with the basics. This is a tendency that must be worked against. Perhaps you serve in children's ministry and you regularly have the opportunity to hear the Bible communicated at a second grade level. Does this cause in your heart impatience or does it cause excitement? This is one of the reasons that evangelistic Bible studies can be so helpful for believers. As we sit down one-on-one, week in and week out, with a non-believer and walk them through the basic truth of the gospel, we are refreshing and reminding ourselves of the sweet and solid fundamentals of our faith. These are opportunities for refreshment, not boredom, because we're always in need of reminder and we should always embrace our individual ministry of reminder. So how do you respond to reminders? Do you see them as a blessing or do you see them as an annoyance? Do you respond with gratitude or do you respond with grumbling when hearing something from God's word that you've heard before? Peter's readiness to rehearse the truth should challenge us to be always ready both to hear and to share the truth of the Bible, even when it may be review. So this letter demonstrates Peter's readiness to remind his readers of Christ's coming. He is also right to remind of Christ's coming. See in verses 13 and 14. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Keeping your finger in 2 Peter 1, turn with me to John 21. And we'll go back to John 21 a couple times. Based on his approaching death, as Christ had revealed, it was fitting for Paul, sorry, Peter, to remind them. Peter knew his days were numbered and he knew that he would die before Christ's return. Look at John 21, verse 18 and 19. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Note something significant here as it pertains to Christ's return. Peter had been told that he would die. He then asks about John. Look at the next verse, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, that is John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Because of Peter's question and Jesus' answer regarding John, the prophecy concerning Peter's own death was conceptually related to thoughts of Christ's imminent return. Peter had been told he was going to die before Christ's return, but Christ had at least left the possibility of his return happening within the lifetime of John. Peter knows it is fitting that he dedicate the remaining weeks of his life to reminder because his death is also a reminder of Christ's coming and the imminency of Christ's coming. Because of the limited time that Peter had to work with, it amplified the urgency of reminding. So in this letter, Peter's ready to remind of Christ's coming. He's also right to remind of Christ's coming. And lastly, regarding the individual witness of this letter, Peter is rigorous to remind. Keeping your finger in John 21, turn back to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, verse 15. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter is eager, he is zealous, he is industrious in his efforts to ensure that his hearers are able to readily recall all that he has taught them. The ministry of reminder that Peter had is flowing from the charge he received from the risen Lord. Again, back to John 21, immediately before the verses that we read, Look at verses 15 through 17. The ministry of reminder that Peter had is flowing from the charge he received from Christ here in John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter got it. He understood Christ had exhorted him to feed his sheep and Peter's life was filled with teaching and reminding, feeding God's people. Even his last letter is evidence that he latched onto this command right to the very end of his life. This can't be manufactured. Effort and zeal for the Lord and doing his work comes from love for the Lord. If we are longing for Christ's return, If we are longing for Christ's return, we will be longing to bring others into that joyful expectation. 
Do those longings, longings for Christ's return, characterize your heart? 2 Timothy 4, 8 reads where Paul is reflecting on the final years of his life. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As we think about Peter's ministry of reminder, there are some generationally specific applications to be made. To our older brothers and sisters, the latter years of life are tailored for this ministry of reminder. Every generation experiences and has to wade through a thousand and one new ideas, creative methodologies, and innovative repackagings of the Bible's truth with varying degrees of accuracy to sound doctrine. Here, Peter models for every aging believer the importance of a ministry of reminder. With children, grandchildren, mentees, those that you're discipling and investing your lives into, do not devalue the importance of reminder. Your influence is inevitable. You will either be an example of loving and clinging to the truth of God's word, or tragically, you'll be an example of restless dissatisfaction and a desire to go beyond what is written. To all of us who are younger, let us not despise reminders. We need them. We read the Lord speaking in Jeremiah 6, 16, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the way is good and walk in it and find rest for your souls. What an invitation. What's the response in Jeremiah 6, 16? And they said, we will not walk in it. Let that not be said of any of us. As Peter's reminder of the church, the individual witness of this letter is his means by which he stirs them up. We must recognize from that that we cannot despise the value of reminder. As we seek to stir up one another to love and good works, Peter's letter should help us all to see the value of reminder for our Christian walk. This individual witness, this letter, this reminder of the certainty of Christ's coming is followed by the second witness to the certainty of Christ's coming. And that is the collective witness of the apostles' experience. The collective witness of the apostles' experience. Verses 16 through 18. Read with me in verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ That is language which the New Testament reserves for the second coming of Christ when he sets up his millennial kingdom. The language is referring to Christ's future glory. But if this is Christ's future glory, how can Peter and his apostles, and and the apostles, have been witnesses of something that has not yet happened? If the power and coming of Christ is future, then what did they see? Thankfully, we have verses 17 and 18. They saw a brilliant and unforgettable foretaste. Look at verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. To what is Peter referring? It is the transfiguration. Turn with me to Matthew 17. Matthew Chapter 17. Before we read Matthew 17, 
Have you ever noticed what immediately precedes the transfiguration account? You can find the parallel accounts in Luke 9 and Mark 9 preceding all three transfiguration accounts. Jesus promises that some of his disciples will be eyewitnesses of the kingdom within their lifetime. Look up at Matthew 16, 27 through 28. Matthew 16, 27 and 28 read, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So they are promised that a handful of them will get to see the royal power of Christ. And what happens six days later? Read with me in Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise, have no fear. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Could you imagine all that they saw, the joy, the excitement, the fulfillment anticipated? Just imagine what they're seeing. Here is Christ, the Messiah, in all his glory. Here he is engaging with resurrected Moses, the quintessential Old Testament saint who died anticipating the fulfillment of all God's promises to Israel. Here Christ is talking with raptured Elijah who was taken up to be with God in heaven without ever tasting death. Here is the very word of the Lord audibly heard from heaven. This is a glorious foretaste of the coming millennial reign of Christ. The sight of it causes Peter to shout out, it is good for us to be here. The joy they were experiencing surely goes beyond expression. And then, nothing. Just Jesus, three disciples on a deserted mountain. That was all they got, just a glimpse of the power and coming of Christ. But it was an unforgettable glimpse. In 2 Peter chapter one, this is the place, this is the passage where Peter explains what happened on that mountain. What happened was the immediate fulfillment of Jesus' promises in Matthew 16, 28, and a thrilling vision of the future reign of Christ when he sets up his kingdom on earth. This experience was a powerful testimony to the legitimacy of Christ's claims. It was unforgettable proof positive that indeed Christ was going to establish his kingdom and he was going to reign in all his majestic glory. But as amazing as such a vision would be, even Peter himself, the one who saw these things, places more stock in the prophetic word than in what he experienced. He in effect says, don't just take it from me and my experience. You have an even more sure testimony that you can rely on 
the entirety of the scriptures. Our senses can deceive us. We can be misled. We can be tricked by our own subjectivity. How much confidence do you place in your own experiences? What takes priority in your heart? The things you've seen and experienced or the things that you've read in God's word? Although Peter's vision was legitimate and is legitimate, there is a third witness that is even more sure than the apostle's eyewitness of the power and coming of Christ. So the first two witnesses to the certainty of Christ's coming are the individual witness of this letter, the collective witness of the apostle's experience, and thirdly, and finally, the comprehensive witness of scripture's testimony, verses 19 through 21. Read with me in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. The third witness to the certainty of Christ's coming is the entirety of the scriptures standing together. Together, These are the more sure scriptures. A direct translation of verse 19, which preserves the word order, would read, and, or also, we have, as more sure, the prophetic word. Far from saying that somehow the transfiguration confirmed the written scriptures, Peter is comparing his own experience with the comprehensive witness of scripture and declaring that the latter is more solid of a testimony. The idea of the prophetic word being made or becoming is um, becoming confirmed is not the clearest sense of this passage. The emphasis of Peter's comparison is that above and beyond the eyewitness experience, we possess scripture as more sure. Scriptures that are not subjectively produced, scriptures that do not change over the years, and scriptures that are not open for revision and modification. As the following verses reveal, here is meant all of scripture. Later in the book, 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16, it illustrates that even at the time of Peter writing this letter, there was a recognition that the apostles, as they wrote, were writing, putting down in writing, inspired scripture. The inspired writings of both the Old and the New Testament constitute a collective and now a comprehensive witness that authoritatively points toward and prophesies the future coming of Christ to rule, to reign, and to execute perfect justice on all the earth. This prophetic word of God that we hold in our hands is our sure and bright guide as we navigate these days. Think back to Peter's assessment of the Mount of Transfiguration. He is saying that the written scriptures produce greater confidence in his heart than his own recollection of that glorious event. Do you realize the treasure we have in our hand when we hold the complete canon of scripture? We have something even better than if we had walked with Christ on earth and seen the miracles for ourselves. Do you believe that? Do you recall the blessing that Jesus gave in John 20, 29 to Thomas? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is blessing from God for us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, not based on the sight of our eyes, but rather on trust in his word. We have the more sure prophetic word. Flowing from the scriptures being sure, this passage tells us that they are also the attention-demanding scriptures. Continuing in verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. 
We are to give heed to the word like a lamp in a dark place. Now this is not just any dark place. The word here for dark is used only here in the New Testament and it means depressively dark. Think of a miserable and a filthy darkness. Not simply the absence of light. It's not that someone went into your bedroom and turned the lights off. This dark place images a place you emphatically do not want to linger. This is gloomy and gross, as though the very walls of this place are covered in mildew and you stand surrounded by pits filled with whatever makes you cringe. In such a place, how much more desirous is that lamp for guidance? How much more is that light appreciated? This is an apt illustration for the world in which we sojourn. It is not merely that the lights are off spiritually. Rather, we live in a contaminated darkness where there's treachery to avoid all around. In this darkness, we do well to pay attention to the word. Moreover, the word demands our attention in this darkness. How well do you pay attention to the word of God? Do you give careful and diligent attention to the scriptures? How does this careful attention practically manifest itself in your life? If you heed not the scriptures, you do so to your own peril. To reject the careful and patient study of God's revelation is to be like a man who decides to take a journey across a mountain at night with no light. Dismissing the prophetic word is to jump in the car at midnight with the headlights off and race down a country road. It is to live a life oblivious to the dangers all around. And these are the presently needed scriptures. God has given his people in the church age his full written revelation as abundant light to guide us as we await the return of Christ. Have you ever spent a night sleeping around a campfire? Before you settle down for the night, you stock up a little pile of firewood so that you can easily feed the fire from the comfort of your sleeping bag and you prepare for the hours of darkness ahead. It seems that the darkest and coldest part of any winter night is the part of the night immediately preceding the sunrise. And that's the part when we're most apt to wake up. So as you put a couple logs on the fire and it's still dark, you start to warm up and you enjoy the warm glow of the fire. And soon you get to experience the joy of watching the day slowly dawn. But what happens to the fire as the sun rises? As the sky starts to brighten and the sun comes out, incrementally and almost imperceptibly, the fire's light seems to shine more and more dimly. The fire becomes less of a fixation and a focal point. The fire is no less bright. The rising of the sun did not somehow darken the campfire. Nevertheless, as the superior radiance of the blazing sun breaks forth, the light of the fire seems comparatively less. As we are in the hour before the sunrise, in these hours of darkness, in the same way that before the sunrise, the light of the fire is particularly needed in those dark hours. In these days, before the return of Christ, the scriptures are the need of the hour. Continuing in verse 19, we read, until the day dawns and the morning star rises. The day will dawn. Here we read the day. This is the day of the Lord. The day is mentioned multiple times in the three chapters of Second Peter. In chapter two, verse nine, and chapter three, verse seven, it is the day of judgment. But in 3.10 and 3.12, it shows us that the day of the Lord is the day of God, a day to be hastened, a day to be longed for, 
longed for by all of those who believe in Christ. The day of the Lord coincides directly with the second coming of Christ when he establishes his kingdom. The day will dawn as the morning star will rise. The return of Christ is the rising of the morning star. Numbers 24, 17 points toward the Messiah as a star. Revelation twenty two sixteen makes this even more clear as we read, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. God has graciously given us these scriptures for the purpose of navigating rightly this dispensation. As we exist after the ascension of Christ but before the dawning of the day at Christ's return, the Bible is given to illumine our path in this, our hour of need. As we eagerly anticipate the reign of our Savior, it is the light of his word that sustains our hope and our joyful expectation. As we long for Christ to come, we must be people of the book. There are so many speculations, so many false theologies and twisted doctrines into which we can wander. We navigate a labyrinth of falsehood every day. In our workplaces, news feeds, and classrooms, every follower of Christ is faced with innumerable lies. And we cannot become familiar with every counterfeit. We cannot become familiar with every counterfeit, but we can become intimately acquainted with the truth against which all other claims can be tested. We must hold to the word until our Savior comes. Do not set it down. Ephesians 6:17 tells us, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Now is no time to set down our weapon. We're not to hold to the word until the church is established. We're not to hold to the word until the authority of the Pope is in place. Note that this is Peter writing this letter, calling people to hold fast to the scriptures as their authority. We're not to hold fast to the word until culture progresses beyond the infantile beliefs of the first century Judeo-Christian mindset. We're not to hold on to these scriptures until the word becomes, until following the word becomes uncomfortable or until you have it memorized or until you have the gist of it. No. The until is very specific. We cling to the scripture through this whole age. It is hard to imagine a more urgent plea from Peter. Do not set down the scriptures until you see the glorious return of Christ. Stand on the word, it is your foundation. As we sang earlier, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? So how are we to rightly love and cherish God's word? We love God's word and unashamedly believe in the authority, the clarity, and the sufficiency of the scriptures. But if we stop there while not also understanding the purpose of the scriptures, we fall short. The flame of God's word burns in this dark world that it might shine the way to Jesus Christ and bear testimony that he is going to return. Recall the stinging warning of Christ in John 5. John 5, 39 and 40 read Jesus saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures testify to Jesus Christ. As we approach God's word, it is our humble and our daily prayer, Lord, show us Christ. As we come to the word, seeking heart-sustaining glimpses of the glory of Jesus Christ that will carry us on toward the day when he comes back for his people. There are wrong ways to pay attention to scripture. Scripture was not meant to be paid attention to so it could be wielded for winning debates. Scripture was not meant to be academically or intellectually figured out without having a commensurate heart and life impact. Scripture is to humble us and to produce worship, not puff us up and produce arrogance. Scripture is to be our light and our guide, not one of a host of counselors that we turn to in times of confusion. Scripture is not to be selectively heeded. As a good check regarding how you read Scripture, you can ask yourself, does my Bible intake produce a greater and greater longing for Christ's return and a deeper desire for him to establish his kingdom? Does it cause me to yearn for that break of day at the return of the word made flesh? After establishing the surety and the necessity of the word, Peter goes on to explain the nature of scripture in verses 20 and 21. Together with 2 Timothy 3.16, which reads, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. These verses in 2 Peter are among the most informative verses in scripture for understanding the nature of the word of God, for understanding what it is that we hold. These are the inspired scriptures. Reading the verse, in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When scripture was written, the apostles and prophets were not taking shots in the dark, guessing or probing toward the truth. They were not hopelessly chained to their cultural biases or merely products of their age, writing historically significant pieces of literature. Scripture did not get written by accident and it was not human will that produced the Bible, it was God's will. Scripture was given as men were borne along by the Holy Spirit like sailing ships are carried along by the wind. Modernism and postmodernism don't marvel at the Bible at all. A man-made document might be neat, but it's certainly not something to let dominate your life. Amidst the modernistic tendencies sweeping the nation, it was this belief, the belief that the entire Bible is the inspired word of God, It was that belief which prompted the start of Calvary Bible Church all the way back in 1929. The reality that scripture is from God and not man's will must be known and cherished in our hearts first of all. As we think about this last witness to the certainty of Christ's return, the comprehensive witness of scripture, the surface level and abundantly apparent application personal application is that we should be individually giving heed to, that is paying attention to the scripture. But allow me to propose another and more pointed application, particularly to those of us, to those of you, who communicate the word in any context. More than simply telling us to read our Bibles, this passage has instructions for how we should read our Bibles and how we should communicate the scriptures to others. 
These verses show us that a right approach to teaching and to studying God's scriptures should produce in us a sense of personal benefit, a sense of urgent need, a sense of eager expectation, and a sense of divine authority. A right approach to the studying and teaching of God's word produces a sense of personal benefit. You will do well to pay attention to this word. When you meet with someone to study the Bible, do they understand how personally advantageous it is to them to pay careful attention to the passage being discussed? Moreover, the word is our urgent need. We need it like we need a light at midnight. Would someone perceive you as reliant on the scriptures as the need of the hour? When hard decisions come, when someone asks your advice, what do they hear you turn to? What do they see you point to? Are you quick to turn to another person or a certain news source or perhaps a a guru when you are faced with uncertainty? Thirdly, it should produce eager expectation, increased excitement regarding Christ's return. When you communicate the Bible, does it heighten in others a longing for the return of Christ? Does your quiet time propel you into the day with a prayer for Christ to return? And fourthly, it should produce a sense of divine authority. Scripture comes from God's inspiration. When you post a Bible verse on Facebook or text an encouraging verse to a family member or share a passage of comfort to a brother or sister grieving, do you do so with the understanding that you are in that moment relaying the fully authoritative and divinely inspired word of the Lord of all creation? How we approach God's word matters. So, the comprehensive witness of Scripture's testimony serves as a clear witness to the certainty of Christ's coming. Together, these three concentric witnesses, the individual witness of this letter, the collective witness of the apostles' experience, the comprehensive witness of Scripture's testimony, all work together to provide us three witnesses to the certainty of Christ's coming. Christ has been gracious to his church He has not been miserly in his provision of encouragements to trust in him and eagerly to expect his return. We can cling to the sources of confidence provided to us in God's word and consequently be renewed and refreshed by bright expectations amidst difficult days. I'll close with the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 15. As he encourages Timothy to carry on clinging to the word amidst the dark days which precede Christ's return, we read these words. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of faith. We thank you for granting us the privilege of being acquainted with your word. For many here, acquaintance that has been present for decades. Lord, help us to hold on to your word. We plead with you to help us hold on to your word as the need of the hour. Sustain us with the hope that your word provides and sustain us with that promise that we have that you will indeed come. 
You will return for your church and you will establish your kingdom. So it is that that we pray, Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.